Hi, podcast listeners. This is your host, C. Culbertson. Welcome to the Colorado Review podcast, a podcast featuring conversations about poetry and prose in partnership with the Center for Literary Progress at Colorado State University. Today, we'll talk with Brandon Krieg about his book, Magnifier, Poetry and Walking, Ways of Sensing and Being in the Body, and how the landscapes through which we commute and travel call to us. We'll also get to hear Brandon read poems from his collection. Hi, Brandon. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thank thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. To get started, I was curious if you could read a poem or two for us. Yeah, I'd love to. This one is called In Case of Loss. In case of loss, repeat what you can. Commute five miles. Dismantle the set. Rest your buzzed head against the arch of the storm. Your cause is this green of light and new leaves. Petition the pollen for thousandfold returns, vineyards and pergolas, enduring enemies. Make your heart push blood through your ears submerged in a tub. Tear the certificate, breathe on the glass, see what belief is, the bloody feathers. Consult the dry canyons whose rivers now rain on thrones behind dams. The stars are reactors some conglomerate will tap. You won't be consulted. Return to ritual, that park always empty. Sit under scaffolding like sparrows or squirrels, neither in nor out. Kneel down with your animal, a heartbeat is strange in any container. Step out of the soundtrack into pine smell and piss mires raying out from a center. Return to the verse marked by another. Read it with feeling to a wall peeling layers. Are you a user with access? Then enter the portal. Sit and say nothing to a child on the steps. The boardwalks, the ice creams, the brainless full summer, knocked down by waves, shell bits in teeth. The hands extended must be gripped each in turn, placeholder to placeholder. Peel off the sticker, put away the pictures, unplug the devices, throw her lock on the eggshells and the bag at the curb. Petition the snows coming from nowhere. They may bring news. Meet her that January as physics allows. Meet her that June. The pool where crabs scatter from cleaning the machinery of the music she loved. Each wave rocks it slightly. Answer the waves coming from shores of nowhere with questions. You lovers, you prophets, which silence is yours? I'll read one more. This is called Havening. We are each other's not safe. Breath is you slip from the image of you. The pulse at your neck is shocking. Touches my touched eyes. You of the row small, freckler of vacancy. Be given, not partial. The world is no-sided. Going to, in case of loss, you open with this image calling on the reader on their commute, you know, turn off all the devices. So I get the sense that the speaker is calling us on us to walk, to kind of get out and, you know, notice the world around us without distractions, maybe. Can you speak to this sort of practice of walking poetry and, and how that fits into the contemporary, the now? 
Yeah. Okay. So to start with the walking, I mean, I think for me, this is, it's such a practice for renewal uh, of my own sort of mental state. It, it helps me um, get out of my head in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, you're moving through a landscape, you're, you're noticing, you're in your senses, um, you're listening, you know, you're feeling your feet move over the ground, uh, you're aware of the terrain, you're aware of the smells, and it's, it's just a way of getting out of thoughts to me. Uh, and I think that, you know, I mean, I, I'm a teacher, you know, I'm a reader, I spend a lot of, of the time thinking, but I think if we spend too much time in our thoughts, we can quickly become anxious or depressed. Uh, and sometimes it's nice to kind of pause those for a second and and just be aware. Uh, and for me, walking is a is a wonderful way of of being sort of bodily and spatially uh, and sensorially aware. Um, and in terms of a practice of poetry, I like what A. R. Ammons says about uh, the 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 similarity between the adventure of writing a poem and the adventure of going on a walk. In both cases, you may be starting from a mundane place. You may be starting, uh, you know, in a preserve that's near your house that you've walked many times. You may be starting, you know, with a familiar word that you're obsessed with, like wind or rain or, you know, these, these things that we continue to come back to in our poems, right? But there's always a chance that something unexpected is going to happen. In fact, something always, almost always, you know, even if it's a slight thing, happens and it's... I mean, it's just, it, it can be endlessly interesting to know, to have that expectation, to, to feel like if I pay attention. I mean, the other day I was walking in this, uh, there's a, a reservoir by my house called Antolani Lake, and the snow was, you know, mostly melted, but there's this huge hill on one side of the trail and then the reservoir on the other side. And there was a tree growing on the hill that was kind of like its roots were exposed. It was kind of like barely sort of hanging on. It was a very large tree, but, but um, clearly some of the soil had washed away from its roots. And there was a stream coming out of its roots of like snow melt, like, like a literally like, a, like a, a, a seasonal river coming out of its roots. Like it was like the tree was giving birth to this stream. Uh, and it was amazing. And I mean, that only probably happens, you know, one week a year when the snow is, is all melting. I'm not going to see it again next week, you know, uh, but just just because I happened to be walking that day, I noticed it and it was, it was cool. It was really interesting. I mean, I, I can't, I don't even want to place another meaning on it. It just was. Uh, and that was what was interesting about it. And so, you know, for me, walking is, is an opportunity to go and, and notice whatever is there to just let what is going to happen, happen. And inevitably, you know, without even really working that hard, if you come back and you, you write, you know, fairly recently afterwards, what you noticed, what you remember about the walk, you know, your mind is going to select the things that are interesting. And it, it, that's a nice thing about taking a, a beat or two afterwards. You know, I, I think, uh, I, 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 can't, I haven't gone back to find this passage, but I'm pretty sure there's a, a part in the, um, the preface to lyrical ballads where Wordsworth kind of it's kind of a, he says something that's sort of negative about writing while you're out in the natural world, like, 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 you know, like the sort of observational. I do that too sometimes. I mean, I don't think that there's any, you know, sometimes it's nice to wait and, and when you're, when you're after and allow the sort of uh, the distance to self-select what was interesting. 
sometimes it's nice to have the pressure of carrying the notebook and carrying the pencil change your attention. You know, like it, it puts a little pressure on your attention in a way that's interesting too. So I do both, uh, just depending on what I'm feeling like or what, you know, what the circumstances of my walk dictate. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask you that if you brought your journal with, because um, that, that's something I always do. I'm, I'm a big cycler, so um, I'm always, you know, keeping a pen and journal in my backpack. I'm also newly transplanted to Colorado from Florida. Okay. So <laughs> there's like this sort of practice of noticing, in my case, cycle, noticing while cycling. And the environments are so different. Right. And you spoke to uh, this kind of seasonal river of snowmelt coming out of the base of this tree. Right. And I'm, I'm seeing that that kind of, you know, where you go, you're caught off guard, something that you won't see the next week. Um, that would happen with cycling to the beach and the tide that day would create a totally different landscape. As you've sort of crossed your own, like, I guess, geographical, um, across geographical locations. Can you speak to how that's changed your writing? Or do you find yourself kind of going to the same place, like those words you're speaking to, like wind and? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. You know, actually, the, the thing I think about, so I grew up in, in the Portland area uh, and uh, just, just, utterly took for granted the mountains and the rivers there that which are which are very dramatic they're not like you know they're really not like other places i mean the west i mean colorado would be probably uh, i mean colorado has more higher higher peaks uh and has the similar similar you know western mountains and rivers feel but you know outside of the rockies and the the cascades uh you know i live near the appalachian trail and it's 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 beautiful the the hike up to the pinnacle here uh near where i live but the mountains are much smaller, you know, it's just a different, it's a very different thing. And I missed the, I missed the drama of the Cascades of, of Mount Hood and, and of the ocean. And I thought, you know, living in other places, I would always feel like there was something diminished about them because that wasn't there. But when I moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I'd never, I'd never spent any time in Michigan before I went there for my PhD program, I quickly found that you can adjust to what's interesting about a place. I mean, there, you know, even just the hills and woods uh, around Kalamazoo offered all kinds of different vistas and, and you know, the, the changes that were happening week to week were still so interesting to me. And I found that just, just that realization of like, kind of wherever you are, there's something to be, to behold. Uh, I found it really sort of affirming after that, I feel like I've been pretty, I mean, I, I lived in Columbia, Missouri after Kalamazoo. There were these, um, there's a state park right, right in Columbia called Rockbridge State Park where there's these caves uh, and these, these interesting rock formations and the stream that runs through it. This kind of like, these kind of like rocky mini canyons. Amazing, like I, 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 it's completely different from what I'm used to, but it was just, just very strange and interesting. Uh, and I would see owls out there and I would, and I would see there, there were uh, persimmon trees, which I've never seen anywhere before, but, and then animals, deer would eat the persimmon seeds and then you'd see it in their scat everywhere, you know, and you're just like aware of these things that are not, I never had seen before. So anyway, I, I, I feel like if you're willing to pay attention, you know, there, there's no, no, 
no place is better than the other, really. Uh, there's, there's something to be noticed anywhere. That makes me think about, there's this phrase that, you know, comes up a lot in contemporary eco-poetics and, and it's the more than human. I think one thing you do in your poems is really push on um, ecology, you know, whether that's the human or non-human ecologies or otherwise, and they kind of get blended somehow. Can you speak to that sense of the other or the more than human? There's so many, there's so many things to say about this. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm teaching environmental lit right now and we're reading uh, so many writers who are talking about in one way or another, whether it's, you know, Aldo Leopold, Rachel Carson, or Enrique Salmon and Robin Wall Kimmerer, they're talking about like interconnectedness and interbeing. And in some ways, I think all of those authors are, are asking us to see uh, the narrow bodily self as, as a fiction, right? And to see ourselves as, as a larger self that includes the more than human or includes the other. I'm very compelled by those ideas, but I also think that there's, putting them in practice is difficult. Uh, or, or actually, it's, it's an imaginative act that takes a lot of sympathy. And then if you actually step back and think about your, your, the actions that you're taking remotely, like driving a car, for instance, you know, which I do on a daily basis, it has ramifications for other species and for myself that are, are far distant from me. So I won't, I won't perceive them necessarily, but they might do harm to those, that larger self, that, you know, that, that ecological self, that web, that I'm not even aware of. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I think that the danger would be this too, like idealized, you know, uh, fiction that like, we're all connected and isn't it great? Like, let's just revel in the thought of that. That I feel like could mask the ways that our, our connectedness can really do harm. So I feel like kind of having a, 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 a balance between like uh, observing and being open to what is more than human, what is not human, what is not controlled by us, and, and wanting to be influenced that by that is, is really important while also recognizing, you know, my actions are always like in some way um, affecting these other things, even if I'm not totally aware of it. I don't know if that really answers. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, I'm actually taking a class right now on, um, on animal ethics okay. and sort of, you know, more than human consideration, um, you know, we're reading, Carrie Wolf. We we did just read uh, Kimmerer and uh, Anna Singh as well, um, and I, I don't. So I don't think that um, Anthropocene as a term comes up directly in Magnifier, um, but this sense of kind of being affected in ways that we might not know or. And you spoke about how even in our daily commute, that's contributing in some way to something else happening in the world. So what I'm thinking about is what is this vision of, I guess, affecting and being affected that you explore in your poems? I mean, to me, it, it, it's a desire to fully inhabit um, the complexity of our lives to, to the extent that it's possible to feel the responsibility for our actions uh, and to feel the changes that are coming about 
because of our dependencies, but also to acknowledge those dependencies. I mean, I think I keep the, the phrase terrible beauty uh, from the, the Yates poem keeps coming to mind. And I know he's using it in another context, but the, the, like when you see, you know, where I used to hike quite often in um, uh, near Kalamazoo on, on Lake Michigan, there was a reactor right by the water. Uh, and I think it's because they use, they use lake water for cooling. And, and so there's like steam coming out all the time, but it's water. It's, it's, it's water somehow cooling the reactor. But it's a nuclear reactor right on the lake, right? I mean, this is, this is literally, it, it's, it's the ultimate sign of human intervention in the natural world. And, and like this thing that's, that's beautiful, this, this massive freshwater, one of the biggest freshwater uh, lakes in the, in the world, right? Um, and they're right next to each other. And, you know, the, I think that there's one strain of, of uh, what I'll do air quotes around environmentalism that wants to say, oh, it's so ugly. It's such an ugly reactor. Like, I don't want that by my tent when I'm camping because <laughs> there's literally a campground right there, right? And, and I think like, I have that in me. I'm, I'm like, I don't want the reactor there. But at the same time, if I, if I can, if I step back one second, I'm like, my energy is probably coming from here. Like, I have to acknowledge that dependency. It's not, you can't just say like, that's ugly, I don't want that, and not have a solution or not have some other way of, of getting your power when it gets to be, you know, minus five in Michigan in the winter. You know, like you can't, you can't pretend like you don't need that. And so I think that that complexity, that, that the difficulty that we're in, right? You know, eight and a half, nine billion people on the earth, we have to have the nuclear reactor right now. We have to have, the agricultural revolution, you know, to feed people. I mean, on some level, and, and even if you're eating organically, the cost of your organic food is lower because of agribusiness, because it's cheap. I mean, and I hate to say that, and that doesn't mean don't, don't farm organically or don't garden in your yard or don't have these connections with earth that are meaningful. Absolutely. But it's part of a whole picture, right? That, that is infinitely complex and difficult and painful to acknowledge. And there's no easy answer. There's no, there's no easy way to get out of this, this net that we've created. And to me, that, 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 the, the terror of that, but also in some ways, the beauty of it. I mean, that, that, you know, eight and a half, nine billion people can live, can survive, can, I mean, that in and of itself is, is remarkable. So I don't know, like, just trying to, to deal with the complexity of these things is, is important to me. And I, I see that strain of, you know, you talked about balance earlier, being able to like be in the moment, like, yeah, I, that is ugly. That's not like, you know, sort of conforming to my idea of, of nature or wilderness, but at the same time, it's, it's nourishing me. Right. So with that in mind, going to um, this idea of nature, wilderness as terms themselves, you know, I, I go to, to history and, and even the writings that have really informed me um, from, I did a project in undergrad on Virgil's uh, eclogues and I wrote a creative response in which I kind of put that into, you know, I wrote it as like a blue ecology, right? I grew up on the water. So I wrote an eclogue that took the ocean as its sort of um, landscape. And I think you're doing something with language and history and magnifier where this idea of wilderness or nature is something that's constructed and that 
we're still it's still informing us today yeah yeah so so uh when i think of uh the the term wilderness uh there's a there's a really influential on me piece by this uh, environmental historian william cronin called the trouble with wilderness and uh in it he talks about how wilderness as a concept only comes about when you know people start to feel like they're separate from the natural world right if you're if you feel like you're an integral part of it you don't there's no distinction between what is human and what is not right and he traces the history of of american attitudes toward wilderness from you know the the early uh settlers and colonizers through the transcendentalists and drawing on romanticism uh and the shift goes from you know wilderness is like a biblical wilderness it's like a waste to wilderness is the 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 seat of god right it's where god is on the mountaintop for uh you know for mirror for sure and and for thoreau god is you know in in the woods and in the the pond but i think for cronin both of these attitudes are problematic because it's still drawing a separation from you know between where humans are and where humans uh supposedly are not the first problem the huge problem that cronin points out is humans have always been in north america for i mean for you know thousands and thousands of years before european colonizers came here um they were here uh, indigenous peoples were here and they were living with the landscape so there is no place that is separate from human intervention and human um cohabitation it's just that's a fantasy right to begin with and then beyond that you know creating this boundary between what is supposedly wild and uh, and non-human and what is human allows us psychologically to destroy where we are in cities and places that are supposedly human because that's not natural anyway right so and to to sort of uh revere and and separate and and cordon off these other spaces as wild you know national parks or or um preserves or whatever uh and and sort of cut them off from other ecosystems and then you know view them as this idealized natural other and Cronin really asks us to to question that idea of wilderness and to see the wild where we are and to use that as a way of protecting the places that we live and honoring the places that we live. He has this great passage at the end um where he says something like the tree in your garden is no less wild than the tree on the mountain. In fact, they probably come from the same seed. They may not have as intricate of a of a environmental connection one one might be more complex than the other, uh but they're no less wild in their way. right and if we can see that uh other otherness where we are and i mean i see this happening sometimes you know like uh my in-laws live in um uh naperville illinois and it's right the depage river goes right right through the town right uh and i've noticed in the past couple of years there's been uh all this sort of like attempt to plant native plants along the river uh in places where there was like mown grass along this biking trail for the purposes of of creating some kind of wetland structure right where where rainwater can be absorbed and there's not so much runoff and things like that well that's happening in an urban space i mean it's a really urban area it's right outside chicago but people are trying to think of it not as exclusively human but like to try to bring back some of the um the natural things that were there you know to to create a more of an ecosystem in this place where humans live i think that's really interesting i mean i think that's some that's a direction that you know that that we could all be doing. Anyway, I I don't know if that answers your question. That's a long tangent, but Yeah, no, I mean that that makes me go to um cuz there's different ways of approaching 
the future, right? <laughs> That's kind of a, a wild statement. But so, so I'm thinking like the sense of kind of remaking an ecology, you could say, or a you know, wilderness space inside of what's viewed as a human space. You know, growing up on the, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, you know, we're receiving thousands of tons, well, millions of tons of sand to, you know, sort of rebuild the beaches or protect, you know, Floridians from the next 30 years of sea level rise, right? That's a little different from what you were talking about, but it is a way of, of sort of trying to, you know, protect a future people or at least make that landscape continue to be sustaining for them. What vision, this might be a wildly huge question, what vision of the future does Magnifier present? Wow. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what the poems themselves uh, are, are grappling with. I mean, you know, in, in the shadow of the reactor uh, imagines, you know, the end of, of English uh, and, and a maple seed still rising up, you know, into itself, uh, regardless of human language. Uh, I mean, maybe I think there is a there is maybe an undercurrent of of apocalypticism or fear, you know. I, I don't think honestly that I was thinking a lot about the future in in writing this. I was thinking more about the 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 really complex networked present, and and just trying to th think through all the different uh, webs and connections of of contemporary experience, um, but. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think I think about I think about the future when we're, we're teaching environmental lit. Uh, when I'm teaching environmental lit, I mean, so much of what I teach is nonfiction. Actually, so many so many writers engaging with. I mean, in some ways, it seems like nonfiction lends itself to observation of what's there, but also to like grappling with problems, right? And I'm not saying that poetry doesn't do that, but but for some reason, I feel like a lot of writers turn to nonfiction for that. But I think I think. What I've learned just even just revisiting these texts is just just humility. This is there are, the problems that we have are immense. It there there's I would say beware of easy solutions. I think that it's going to take a, a a real concerted effort and a systemic effort. In fact, I've been thinking recently that in some ways the 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 consumer choice model, right? The like vote with your dollar and and you know you know recycle your cans and and buy organic it's actually, it does harm because it, it pretends like individual choices will have the impact that they won't. They won't, like you can't, I, I don't know how to say it. Like it's too, there's too many people driving cars right now for one person stopping to matter. What we need is real public transportation that everyone can use. We need that systemic change. We need it to be more, gas to be more expensive. We need other, other ways of getting around. We need bike lanes. We need, we need these bigger picture things that are actually gonna make an impact. And those are, those are collective choices. Those are not individual choices. And I think that our American individualism wants to put so much, I mean, on, on the one hand, we think that we're, we're so free and we have all these choices and it's so important and we're so great. On the other hand, we're, we're really quick to put the moral blame on individuals. And I think in some ways it's, it's a collective blame. Right. I mean, these the, the our dependencies right now are vast and they're collective uh, and, and we need we need collective solutions. And the only I mean, really, the Green New Deal and some of the talk about, uh, you know, like renewing 
sustainable infrastructure and things like that has been the thing that's made me most excited recently. Uh, this idea that we could have a, a massive collective response, really mobilizing all the different parts of our society to, to deal not, not just with, uh, you know, uh, environmental issues, but uh, environmental justice issues and worker, uh, worker rights, you know, good jobs and racism and other things that overlap and interconnect with, with environmental issues as well. I don't know. That's, that's what's given me some hope uh, that people are talking about, you know, things like the Green New Deal. Yeah, that's, that's definitely where I go these days. And, and I don't know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough, right? Um, and I, I completely um, agree with what you're saying. And there's, you know, this kind of, I guess, juncture between nonfiction and poetry in terms of thinking about the future. It's really just encouraging, actually, that there are so many writers writing about this right now. So I'm curious kind of where you, where you see yourself fitting in with contemporary eco-poetics. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I think that um, it, to me, there's something that Thoreau says uh, at some point about like, I can't even remember where this comes from, but it's something like, you know, if, if anyone tell, tells me their experience truly it'll it'll be like some kind of like piece of important news to me right like i can't remember exactly but it's sort of like the idea of like like your experience is is matters in and of itself and is useful and i kind of think of that in terms of like you know attending like moments moments of true attention where something is actually noticed they're useful for everyone because they they give us something to notice uh, I'm thinking uh, we just we just I just came from a class where we were talking about Robin Wall Kimmerer's essay "Learning the Grammar of Animacy," and she's talking about this uh, Potawatomi word uh, "pupoi," which is like a word to describe mushrooms pushing up overnight, right? And I'm thinking like you've got that word and now you see it because you have a way of conceptualizing it. You have you have a, a way of attending to it, and part of what poets are doing is they're helping us see what what is there to attend to. And, and they're creating a language. I mean, if, if English is, is a, a language that's, not, that's, that's rich in things, but not necessarily in like observed uh, natural things, then part of what poets are doing is, is writing the language that allows us to see those, those interesting phenomenon. And so, I mean, you know, maybe my work fits in by, by, by noticing a few things and, and uh, I, I turn to other writers to notice others and, and collectively we, we start to 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 see and be able to be out in nature's and in our in nature and in our bodies, you know, more fully. I love that this idea of kind of poetry being a way to produce language that helps us conceptualize ways of noticing the world around us that maybe maybe we're not so you know focused on right now. This kind of way of like pointing out the individual or seeing whether it's a poet or just somebody that you're passing on your commute that's you know just standing waiting for the go light on the street right the kind of individual experience that is adding to something maybe working toward a sort of collective but your poems push on this idea of the us specifically you say that Again, among the snakes and turtles, oaks, the us, there's no pronoun for. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably uh, influenced by Kimmerer and uh, that essay in particular, and, and some others by uh, indigenous writers who talking are talking about how language conceptualizes relationships between the human and the more than human. But uh, I, I think that, you know, the idea there was sort of like, do we have a, a term that, that can describe the, the interdependencies that to describe the, the, the self that is not the narrow self, but is the, the big self? In some ways, it's, it's, it's an idealized self, but in some ways not. I mean, it's very, I've been influenced quite a bit by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist, in some ways popularizer for the West of, of Buddhism. Uh, but I find, I mean, very useful for me, it's someone who's, who's not embedded in that culture to, to have um, some of the ideas uh, made accessible uh, to me. But he, he draws these sort of like, you know, the, the, the piece of paper is in the rain cloud because the cloud is going to rain on the tree uh, that becomes the paper, right? And, you know, the, the, these, these deeper, deeper senses of interdependence that are, that are you know, they're really not on the surface. And the idea, uh, you know, I've sometimes talked about my, to, to my students about like, you know, if, if you need the tree to produce oxygen, as much as you need your lungs to process the oxygen or, or, or bring it into your blood, right? Can we really say that the tree is not a part of ourself? I mean, I know this feels like, you know, it, it, it feels a little bit, um, over the top or something, but, but it, it's really, it, it really, I mean, if you really think about it hard, you need that, you need that tree, you need, you need the rain to get water. I mean, we've, it feels like, oh, the water's always going to be there, you know, it's going to come out of the faucet, but you, it is, it is us. And, and I think that Thich Nhat Hanh wants us to do, to sort of uh, contemplate this in order to understand how, you know, having compassion for others, other humans, other species, uh, and understanding our connection to other things is a way of having compassion for ourselves too, is a way of, you know, honoring and taking care of ourselves as well. Now, I say this as someone who is, is just a reader of, of books and not, not embedded in, in this culture by any means, but it's, it's really affected me in the way I think about, you know, my, my position in the world. So in the epigraph, you quote this passage from Rachel Carson from her book, Silent Spring, and I'll just read it quickly here. In feeding on the leaves, the worms also swallow the insecticide, accumulating and concentrating it in their bodies. Undoubtedly, some of the earthworms themselves succumb, but others survive to become biological magnifiers of the poison. So you talked about you know, you've been talking about kind of the way that we become or become with like, you know, the tree whose spores we kind of <laughs> ingest into or our lungs process, you know, as we breathe air. Is that like, do we become biological magnifiers when that happens is, is like, what's your conception of, of magnifier, I suppose, in that sense? Or how did that lead you into the writing the book yeah well so that that sense of of magnifier is uh is is actually quite dark because uh the passage or what 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 carson is is uh is getting at there and i i i know that this it's taken out of context in the book but so the the earthworms that survive 
they have a, a, a fair amount of DDT or other, other carcinogens in them, not enough to kill them. But if a robin eats 10 of them, the robin will die. And so they're sort of magnifying the effect of the poison by concentrating it in the thing that's, a, that's you know, gonna eat them. And so in a way, the magnification is, you're making the problem worse. Like you're, or you're, you're amplifying the, the destruction. Um, and, and to me, that was in contrast with the smart passage where for him, magnification is, is uh, sort of singing the praises of what's higher, right? Like singing the praises of, of uh, for, him, for him, God, but, but I think it could also be, you know, like, uh, you know, the poet's job to, to praise or, or to, to show us what's there, what's, what's, uh, what's there to, to make meaning, you know, outside of consumerism or, or other things that, that um, we're told are where we need to find our meaning. So to me, the magnification is the, the potential that we all have to make things worse. And, uh, and, and it's also the, the, the um, chance that we all have to notice and, and enjoy uh, what's there. I mean, I think, I don't know if this really comes through in the poems, but something I think about a lot, and I think it needs more processing, is just, you know, the, the practice of walking, for instance, not entirely. I'm not. I'm not saying that this is is completely free of consumption, but it it's a low it's a low consumption activity. It you know you have to buy a pair of shoes probably. You know you're going to wear clothes. These are sort of the things that we 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 tend to need anyway. But you know let's say that you go on a year of walks in your shoes. The amount of resources that you're consuming is small compared to the meaning that you're making. Right. So so like you're you're like the the potential to be fully present and aware and in your, you know, your human self is very high compared to the amount of, you know, resource extraction or use that you're making, right? And I think, you know, in some ways, poetry is similar. You know, I may be using a pencil or some paper there. That is a resource. Don't get me wrong. That's, but the amount of uh, inhabiting my life that I get out of that is, is quite great compared to the resource that's used. And I think that, you know, in some ways, poetry teaches us to be aware in ways that are that are are not consumptive, right? And and, and it does this with humans too. Like, uh, it encourages us to see other people for who they are, and connect with other people, and have compassion for them, and and want to be with them, and make meaning. You know, talking to a friend uses a lot fewer fewer resources than uh, you know uh, going on a road trip or. Um, eating at a fancy restaurant or what. And I'm not saying to never do these things either. I'm just saying like, in some ways, I think that we, we need to train ourselves to get meaning out of things that are not just based on consumption. It's not even that we have to train ourselves. We know, I mean, it, the, I think the pandemic has made this absolutely clear, right? When you can't connect with other people, you feel that loss, right? And I think about like, okay, so what if we, how can we cultivate those things and turn to them? You know, when you have that itch, that's like, ooh, I want to buy another book, just because I feel like, buying that book is going to make me feel good. <laughs> what if instead you're just like, I'm going to walk over to my friend's house, knock on their door and say, hey, you want to go for a walk? Or hey, you want to talk? What I've heard today in our conversation is this, this idea of stepping back from ourselves, but also holding at the same time, whether it's in terms of the consequences of just living but holding, holding like those two things with us at once, right? Both are noticing, but also like what we're like putting out into the world or what reaches us. So 
you started off with this poem Havening and there's that, that last line that I keep returning to be given, not partial. The world is no sighted. Does that kind of speak to the sense of like taking a step back? Before we started, we talked just for a second about the pastoral. And I think, I think I have something to say about this that I think dovetails with, with that idea, which is the pastoral of uh, Virgil, from what I understand it, is sort of the, the, uh, the space, uh, the sort of, you know, tame space of fields and agriculture between scary wilderness and, you know, the corrupt city, right? That there's this, there's this place that's nice and it's benevolent and it's in between. And then like Leo Marx would say in the United States, it's like, it's like between wilderness and the machine, right? Like industry and, and, and how that sort of terrifies us and encroaches on our lives. But I think there's another way now for us further on in, in capitalism where the pastoral is sort of between fantasy and despair. The fantasy of like, you know, technology is going to save us and, you know, we're all, everything's going to be fine and we're all connected. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, like the, the, the simulated worlds that we create to try to, to cover up what we're actually doing to the earth and to each other. And then the despair, right? The, the apocalypticism, the, the sense of, you know, it's all, it's all uh, smashed anyway, so fuck it. I don't care. I'm just going to use up whatever I can and go out in a blaze of glory, right? That, that pastoral now is, is, is a way of, of inhabiting a realistic middle space that acknowledges our dependencies and what we're doing to the earth, but also acknowledges that there's still room for joy and compassion and connection. And, and that that to me is, is the no-sidedness, right? Like if you can be in that place where, you know, there's not, we're not on the one side of despair or on the other side of fantasy, but we're actually like fully inhabiting the real uh, and the complex, you know, to me, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm interested in is, is what's, what's really here, all of it, uh, and trying to hold that in mind without being destroyed by it or without, you know, just resorting to some kind of uh, thing that's not real. I think your poetry is giving us that language to conceptualize or reconceptualize that. Uh, so before we started talking, um, you had told me that you were working on a new project. Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So there's a couple things informing it. Uh, well, one, one is the pandemic. Uh, you know, w- when quarantine first happened and we thought that we were going to be inside a lot, my, my wife, who's also a writer, uh, and I neither of us visual artists, but we just wanted to do some, some visual art stuff it, it just, just for fun, right? To, to have a little bit of a different thing going on. And that kind of got me interested in, I, I, so, so I got interested in linoleum block printing and it got me kind of interested in paper. I've been writing on typewriter a lot. So I've been kind of into the materiality of what I'm writing on. I got really into pencils uh, and just writing with different pencils on different paper, just just getting into like the materiality of writing uh, and enjoying that as part of the experience of of doing the work. And it got me thinking, what would I if I if I had the option of just publishing something myself, you know, what would I write? Would that affect my writing? Would it change it? And it was also this. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll make a pamphlet. You know, I'll do it all. I'll, I'll I'm into the paper and I'm into the stuff right now. So I'll I'll, I'll even make a, a print for the cover. You know, that'll be fun. And it just, it really got me going. And part of the pamphlet idea too is I, I've been really into uh, Leroy Jones, Amiri Baraka's Totem Corinth Press, where, you know, he published Gary Snyder, he published Jack Kerouac, he published his own first collection, uh, which is amazing. He published Frank O'Hara, Barbara Guest, 
guest was a little bit later, but they published pamphlets, right? Just staple bound pamphlets that they still look really nice. And, and the, the, the poetry is quite, uh, you know, great. Uh, so, and New Directions has a new pamphlet series that I really like too. So those were influences in the back of my mind. I was like, okay, what if, what if you could publish a pamphlet, print it cheaply, create the art so that it looks nice, and then, you know, give it to your friends or, or sell it at a reading for, you know, five bucks or whatever, just to recoup your expenses. So that kind of drove the project. Uh, and then the other thing uh, in the back of my mind was, well, two things. One is Spring and All by William Carlos Williams. The, com the combination of, of poetic po poems, fragments, and prose. Just, I've always, I've, I've been drawn to that and I've wanted to try something with that. Uh, and this seemed like the perfect project to do it for. And then the other thing is uh, Thoreau's Journal, which, is, which has actually been a huge influence on my poetry. Because uh, there, I mean, he's doing the kind of observing and, and sort of showing us the mystery and uh, interest in the daily, the daily, just the absolute, like, what if you could live every day of your life as if something cool or interesting was gonna happen? So I thought, okay, this can be, this is gonna be uh, an opportunity to bring in some of the dailiness of the pandemic, to, to get observations and poetic fragments together and to just see what happens, mix it all up and see what happens. And I got really absorbed in it. And I was uh, doing uh, most of the drafting on my typewriter during the pandemic, at first, I was typing things up and, and taping them to my wall just to feel like this is like an imaginative window out, out of the, out of the, um, you know, the confines uh, of quarantine. But it turned into uh, a, what, what is uh, one continuous poetic thing that's poems, poetry and prose and fragments and poetic statements and, uh, you know, kind of like, like spring and all. And I finished it in the fall. Uh, and then I really consumed a lot of energy and time and it was really fun. The, the long and short of it was, this was a new way of working for me that was exciting. Whether or not what I finally came up with is something that I'll end up loving later on, I have no idea. But it was just kind of like, like, that's not even the point. The point is just to like, see what happens. There's, a, there's an interview that I, I teach uh, in my poetry workshop with, uh, uh, with Amiri Baraka later on in his career. Uh, where he says something like, just get your poetry out there. Now that we've gotten to, to spend time hearing about your work and the ways that you're conceptualizing environmental thought in your writing, I wanted to ask a question to kind of get to know you more on a, on a different level. Earlier, you talked about how buying a pair of shoes is a low-impact way of getting out there right what's your opinion on you know in terms of of trail shoes or running shoes are you into the barefoot <laughs> shoes or do you go for for a uh, larger track? i have a, i have a pair of uh uh ll bean uh uh the bean boot right uh these were given to me as a as a christmas <laughs> present uh over uh over 10 years ago now uh so they have lasted a really long time and actually um I, they, they recently, the seam along uh, one of them uh, split. And so every time I would step in deep snow, the snow would get inside my boot and get my foot all wet. And I got really annoyed. Uh, and I was going to buy a new pair. And then I thought, what if I could repair these? <laughs> and so I got like some shoe goo, right? This like super like strong <laughs> epoxy. And, uh, and I, I fixed them. I fixed them. I mean, they're, they're as good as new. <laughs> And then I felt so good about myself, like stupidly good about myself for like 
you know, like, like salvaging <laughs> these boots that I've had for so long and at least getting like another season out of them. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I hike in these a lot. They're very, they're, they're waterproof and they're very versatile. Um, but actually it's funny that you say barefoot because uh, there, there's a, um, there's a, a line and receiver uh, that is kind of taken. So every, every summer I try, I, I spend uh, usually about a month or, or maybe six weeks in, in Oregon with my family. And I, I try to hike the, there's a 43 mile trail around Mount Hood that I try to hike every summer. And I've noticed, and some of the, some of the trail is extremely fine, like volcanic dust, like powder. It's really weird. It's like, it's very fine powder. And it print, like people's prints stick in it really strongly, right? But I've noticed like the past couple of years that they're like, people have these, some kind of shoe that creates a print <laughs> that makes it look like you're a, t like you have a tiny alien foot. <laughs> like it, it's very bizarre, but it, it's, it's maddening. Like you feel like you're, you're tracking a tiny alien across the mountain. Uh, and it drives me nuts. I want to see like what these look like. Uh, or if it really is a tiny alien, yeah. I mean, that is possible. <laughs> Thank you, podcast listeners, for tuning in. Next week, we'll be talking with Iris Jamal Dunkel about her book, West Fire Archive. <laughs>